Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Mountains We Climb. This is a series where we dive into people's journeys of overcoming challenges and adversity in their lives so we can understand what is really possible and what it really takes. I'm your host, Jordan Kilpatrick-Smith, and in this week's episode, we're going to be exploring Dr. Baljit Kamba's journey of finding resiliency through cancer and then building on his lessons through the journey after. Baljit, thank you for being here with me. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. So where does where does this story of yours start? My story, honestly, it begins, um, if I was to put a, a standing point on it, it begins that moment when I was sitting in the doctor's office um, at the hospital and she told me I had cancer and she just, you know, she as she was my surgeon and so as wonderful as a surgeon and I had such great care, a wonderful, amazing surgeon. Um, I feel she, she was a great surgeon, but I, I feel like sometimes the people side of things when it comes to surgeons may not always be there because she just sort of dumped the information, told me, you know, in, in, as if it was something, as if she was reading the news, what was going on. And so, and that was pretty big. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, what kind of cancer was this? So it was um, a triple negative breast cancer. So what that means is that a triple negative breast cancer is meaning that it's not dictated um, in its growth um, or its treatment with hormones. So it grows just willy-nilly. It just grows um, pretty fast and is pretty aggressive. Um, and so it was a it was it happened, and I, I I had felt that lump. So my story sort of begins at that point. And so, and this was the point. So she tells me that I have cancer, I have breast cancer, and you know, I'd have to go through all these terrible things and of chemo and surgeries and um, you know, fertility preservation and all these sort of stuff. And then she leaves and um, I turn to my husband and I just, I let out a curse, like a whole bunch of curses. And then I just started sobbing and crying because that was the moment that I realized that all the things that that was when I was at the peak of my life where I had, you know, I loved my job. I loved what I was doing. I was finally at that point where I'd kind of gotten all my things that I'd wanted to do from the outside that I thought. And I was like, this is me at the peak of my life. Um, and I was, I had just turned 40 and, um, and then to be hit with that information to, to be hit with that news right at that time really was a, was a major kick in the gut. Yeah. And so, okay. So you had felt this lump. You're like, I should go get this checked out. You went, got it checked out. You get brought into this doctor's office. She's like, Hey, you got cancer. Here's all the stuff that's going to have to happen. Very, very matter of fact. And just when life was really all coming together, you, so you're 40, uh, being a naturopath, you went through a lot of school, a lot of effort to get to where you were. And then it's like, and bam, here's cancer. Yeah, exactly. So prior to that, I was, um, so I'm a naturopathic doctor. I was in clinic before, and then I'd moved to California to be in, um, to be teaching. Cause I really, my, my life goal was to teach and research as well, um, as well as being in clinic. So here I was finally being able to do all that. Um, and then when all this sort of happened, I went back, I was back in Canada 
Um, and, for, and I had to kind of start at the beginning again. I was back at home, my husband and I, we, we were with my parents. So we moved into my parents' place and um, I started treatments and everything there. And I was happy to be home because, you know, if I was gonna go through this, I'm glad that I was surrounded by friends and family. All, my, all the people that I know in my entire life are, you know, are within Toronto and the GTA. So I'm glad that I was able to, that I had to sort of restructure everything again from the ground up. So from the very beginning, like going back to my parents um, after doing all these different things in my life and start all over. Um, and that was a big deal for me. Yeah. So in that, just just going back just a little bit, in that moment where you were given the news that, that you have cancer, what what was that like? What was that moment experience like for you? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. So a lot of that sort of time was me, if I was, you know, when I think back to it, it, it definitely like brings about that, you know, that sensation of the tightness in your chest. I feel like I can stop breathing. Cause when I think about that, that sort of what I felt at that time was like, all of a sudden there's this tightness in my chest. And I felt like just like someone had knocked the wind out of me. And here she was, you know, identifying the fact that there were three, you know, we didn't know that there were three tumors. She says maybe more than one, but it looks like it's a large tumor. Um, it may have metastasized. We don't know yet. Um, you know, we don't know what's going on. And, you know, my parents had, and so it was, it was, uh, and I'll go back to my parents after, but it was really devastating. Um, I felt like my entire life was pretty much over. And she, at that point, she was telling me that I may not even live very long. Um, and so, and my husband and I were wanting to, we were family planning and wanted to start a family. And so at least I was able to get, you know, some of my senses together. And I, I was the one that asked her, I said, you know, and thinking back to, I was like, okay, if I'm thinking myself in, in, in patient mode, let me, let me start this. So I was like, okay, um, if this was a patient of mine, I'd wanna find out about fertility preservation. So the mm -hmm. first thing I did was I said, okay, well, how much, you know, I, I want to go and see if I can preserve any eggs. Cause you know, I know that chemotherapy is gonna knock me into menopause or destroy my ovaries or do something. And so she had said, okay, well, she's like, I'll give you two weeks. You've got two weeks to do whatever fertility preservation you can do. And then, but after that, you have to start chemo because we can't let this go any longer. Um, you know, you, and uh, and we've got to try to get this tumor under control. So, um, so that was where I began. So that was that was a, a sort of a whirlwind. I left her office um, and the hospital. And interestingly enough, even coming into that office, we came in um, in the waiting room with. It was my husband's second day of a new job that he had just started. And by this point, okay. prior to that, I was convinced it was a cyst. It was just cysts. It was nothing major. I, cause it, you know, it grew so quickly and I'd always had a cyst sort of in that spot. So I assumed that, you know, I'm 40, it's probably just hormones and getting bigger. Mm -hmm. So then I, you know, I, I told my husband and I had had three biopsies by this point. So they had, you know, very quickly within a few days, did all my um, imaging and biopsies and whatever they needed to do. 
And I was trying to tell, I was just about to tell him, you know, go back, go to work. It's your second day of this new job. What do you, what do you need to sit here mm. and have them tell me it's a cyst? And, um, and I was convinced that it was a cyst. And so I was, just as I was about to say it, they called me into his office, they called me into her office. And I was so glad that he was there. And then even the day before that, um, the day before we were at the appointment, you know, my husband and I, we went out for, um, for dinner and we just had a great time. We had a bottle of wine and we were just chatting. And I said, tomorrow is going to be a day that we'll remember because it'll either be the day that we define as this was our cancer scare or it's a day that's gonna really change a lot of things. And I was still under the impression that it was a cancer scare. And that's what I convinced myself of. I'm like, it's a cyst, it's something I'm gonna worry about. It just grew. And so, you know, as much of a healthcare practitioner and as much as I check myself and do all that sort of stuff, um, that disbelief was still there. I was like, no, no, it's fine. Yeah. So it wasn't until she actually said it, then, I felt like everything else around me sort of shut down and I'm like oh my god so the wind got knocked out of me and that was really hard yeah and so to hear that you know you may not survive this how long did she say or did she give you like a specific timeline mm-hmm, she did she said you she gave they, they do things in five years so she said your five-year rate of survival it was pretty low it was like at that point it was really low and she was like you know if what we're seeing is what we're seeing um you know and we didn't know if it had metastasized or anything she's like if it's three tumors or if it's one large tumor um she's like your rate of survival and I can't remember what it was it was like oh I think it was low like five percent or something she had said it was really low right whatever she had given me and I was like oh my god okay so I'm not I'm not going to, but she's like, but this is, but she's like, and that's if you don't respond to chemotherapy. Right. And she goes, fortunately, uh, or she, no, she didn't say that. She's like, if you respond, if you don't respond to chemotherapy, that's what's going to happen. Um, and she had said right away, you know, once chemotherapy is done, you're going to have a double mastectomy. Um, and then I, you know, tried to get all my senses together and I was like, okay, well, what if it's, if I respond to chemotherapy and it's just a lump and she's like, well, you know, we don't know if this cancer is going to return or not. And at this point, we didn't know my genetic status, that if this was, this was something that was genetic. Right. Um, and so the next step was then to, to see if this came from my family or not. Which it, it did, right? It did. So this cancer was something that came down from the women in my family. And so this cancer was um, my interestingly enough my father's mother who I've never seen a picture of her and I never met her because she died as a young woman around the same age as me from breast cancer and so I apparently look like her and act like her and I've never met her before and I've never seen a picture of her but anyone who's who knows of her um will say that I look just like her my father obviously tells me that I look like her and he and uh when my father was 14 was when she passed away and so interestingly enough, um, so she's had some, she, some of her daughters, um, I think one of them, and this is all in India, so nothing in Canada. Um, one of them had ovarian cancer, but it was much later in life, like in her sixties or seventies and she passed away. Um, then her other daughter, um, my other aunt, she had, um, 
a, I think she didn't have ovarian, she had a uterine and cervical cancer. So again, not tied to the gene. So by the time the genetic testing was done, it was done on my dad, my mom, my brother, and my dad's surviving sister. And, um, and it ended up being that it was my dad that had it. Nobody else had it. And so none of my cousins have the gene, um, even the one whose mother had my aunt who's had the uterine cancer, they had tested them and none of them had it either. So I felt like, okay, so this gene was passed on from my dad to me. So I felt like it was a torch that I had to bear. So it was mm-hmm. something that I'm gonna now um, take over as something that was gonna stop here with my, with me. And I, if anyone was gonna get it, let it be the person who's the, the healthcare practitioner and looks like, looks like her. This is her second chance now yeah. to say, we're done. We're done with this. This is not defeating us this time. Yeah. And so you, you did the fertility preservation treatment. You, you're back in Canada now. At this point, you've begun chemo? So yeah, so fertility preservation, we tried to do the best we could. Um, but being 40 and, and I was at the wrong end of my cycle because we only had a small amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, we were able, in the end, uh, we were able to save one embryo. So thankfully that frozen embryo is frozen away and we call that embryo Envy. Um, and then we, and then that, that embryo helped me through all this. Cause I'm, you know, we keep imagining the future that we're going to have. And that was my goal. Right. So I started chemotherapy right away. So I think I was diagnosed May, whatever, like 19 or something. And I started chemo. I had my, um, egg retrieval done, I think like July, June 1st, and then June 2nd, I started chemo. I started chemo. And what year um, is this? 2019. Gotcha. And so uh, I started chemotherapy right away and it was, I had eight rounds of chemotherapy every other week. It was two different forms of chemotherapy that they did. Um, and they were pretty strong and it would leave me feeling pretty loopy, uh, pretty, a lot of pain. And, but I still, through it all, I ran every day, except for the one or one day when I'd be, when all my white blood cell count, when everything, like all my counts would go and I was extremely tired. That was probably the day that I would take it easy, but only one day. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I ran every day. I did yoga every day. I meditated. I, my diet was good, but it was, you know, even exemplified even more. And so I made cancer, my new job, my type A personality kicked in and said, listen, <laughs> I have a binder with everything and I have all these like motivational things around me that I I would get from my cancer angels they called it and so I used motivation and tons of like anything that I could do to make sure that um that this is something that I was going to stop and I was determined would stop with me and I would move through and I would not just conquer but I would not just like not just move through cancer, but actually thrive and, and come out better, better than I ever was before. Yeah. And where did the motivation for that come from? Because I imagine Mm -hmm. there would be a lot of people who would just totally crumble under this, this massive news of you have this very aggressive form of cancer, right? Mm -hmm. So one was that embryo um because I was like that embryo I was like I've got to make sure to be here because I've got this little embryo frozen away right. and I want to be here to to raise a child and that was a big deal for me 
And that was one part. And the other part was, I was, I was like, I'm not done yet. I have so much to do. I was like, what do you mean? You know what plans I have? For yeah. this <laughs> I was like, no way. <laughs> so it was more of that because I was just shoot, just determined. I was like, this is, I finally got my life together. I was just married and my husband and I got married the year before. I was like, no way. Is this where this stops? Yeah. And so that was, and honestly, I didn't even think about a lot of that at the time. It was just at that time, it was something that I was just like, I've got to do all these things and I'm going to move through it. I'm going to give, and all I kept thinking about was like, and I'm going to be fine in the end. And that was really all it was. And I, it wasn't until after cancer that all the work has begun. Like that's when like, I felt like during cancer, you're so focused on this is my, you know, I've got to, I've got to do all these things. I've got all these appointments. I've got all this, like I've got chemotherapy, I've got exercise, I've got yoga, I've got this, and I've got so many things happening that I was focused on all of that, on all my well-being, that I didn't focus on what I'd been through until after I was, until after they said, after the mastectomies, after all the surgeries, and the surgeries are still going on, um, and they're still removing parts of my body, and uh, as it goes on. Yeah, so, so you already, so you had the double mastectomy. And they're still doing surgeries? Mm-hmm. So they did a double mastectomy with immediate reconstruction. So they put silicone implants um, into my breast. And honestly, that was the first time that I knew I had cancer. Because, and actually, no, it wasn't then. It was, so I had the double mastectomy and they had silicone implants. And so when I looked down, I'd still see, you know, two breasts. One of them, you know, the one on the left, because the cancer, the type of breast cancer was in my ducts. Um, so the ductal, it was an invasive ductal carcinoma and thankfully, you know, it hadn't spread. It was the three, it was not spread beyond the three tumors that were then discovered. Um, so it wasn't, so what happened was, is that because the cancer was in the duct, they had to remove the nipple as well. So when I looked down at my breast, yes, I saw, you know, one breast and one was looking a little funky because it didn't have a nipple. Right. But then what happened was um, that left side, the white side with the cancer, um, it started to get infected and then it got repeatedly infected. So it rejected the silicone implant. And so as much as I kept trying to hold on to, you know, I was fighting with, that was when I actually fought and I was fighting with everything in me to keep that, um, that implant because, and I didn't realize until after, but I was fighting because I needed this to succeed. I needed everything I'd been doing. Thankfully, I'd done really well. By the time they did surgery and did biopsies, they noticed there was no more tumors left. It was just scar tissue. I had done so well. I needed this to go, to keep doing well. So otherwise, I don't know what was going to happen. And so when it did end up failing and I was in and out of the hospital so many times and then they finally he did an emergency surgery we had to take out the implant and I was left awake he's like this has got to come out now otherwise you run the risk of sepsis or your whole you know having an infection through your whole body right and that was really serious and so um he's like it's already cellulitis your skin's degraded it's you know I was I realized what I was fighting I was holding on for and so um, basically I lay down on the table, on the operating table. My husband like quickly, like I turned my head to the side 
and my husband like takes a um uh, a towel or a towel a sheet and wraps it around my head because I, I didn't want to see him he I couldn't look at it I didn't want to see what he was about to do and then um the surgeon just sort of froze whatever he could freeze as quickly as he could and he cut like cut the area took out the the implant and all I could feel was like this big suction and it just sort of I could hear it and then like my whole chest sort of went up and I just felt like the last tendrils of my femininity sort of leaving as he took out that um as he took out sort of ripped out that that implant and then after there were still infections going on for another two months but I couldn't look down at my chest because if I looked down I couldn't look at it whole like it was all bandaged up but right. if I looked down then I I'd know I had cancer because it was there's nothing there right and so and that was hard for me because I I felt like I was like I I can't even know I was like at the end of the day it's two pieces of flesh it's not like a vital organ but it was so closely tied to me as a woman as a person as you know, a potential mother, as so many different for my sensuality, so many different things mm-hmm. were tied to my breasts that, you know, first I I've lost sensation in them. Now I've lost them all together. So, you know, I lost. So when he did that, uh, when they removed that other side, then then that was it. Then that was gone. And so he was like, well, now we need to let the infections rest, and eventually we'll do another surgery and figure it out then um so that was a pretty big deal yeah so okay so at the same time as mastectomy they then put the implants in Mm -hmm. it was called an uh, immediate it was a mastectomy with immediate reconstruction gotcha and then the left side got pretty infected there to the Mm -hmm. point where you had gone in to see the doctor the doctor's like i don't care what you have going on right now get on this table we're taking this out um yeah and so you get this this left implant removed and and as you look down it was like okay this i i have cancer yeah and so yeah absolutely that was the path that i was going down and how i was feeling yeah and how long did that last for that that feeling of i've lost my femininity i've i've lost this this large part of of who I am and how I identify myself honestly it still goes on like I I can't say that feeling has completely gone away because it's not just that that happened here I was um you know I was ushered into sorry I was sorry Snoop is my dog's name is Snoop and he loves to give (laughs) opinions (laughs) and so you know here I was um forced into menopause earlier than I wanted to so now I was getting all the effects of menopause, hot flashes, right? Right. So now I'm having hot flashes. I'm having other, you know, unpleasant symptoms of having, um, of being in menopause, which are um, having uh, what's called vaginal atrophy, whereas, you know, my, the, the vaginal space becomes very dry and painful. And so there's that aspect to it as well. Then there was, um, Another part where I ended up, like my, I started to gain weight where I never expected that before. Um, And so weight gain became a part. And so like all these things that I never really anticipated. And so when I look at myself and I look at myself in the mirror, my face is so different 
from what it used to be. And I feel like, you know, other people look at me and they're like, well, you look exactly the same. I'm like, I don't know. When I look at myself, I look different. It's, it's not the same face. It's, you know, and I, I'm, I'm sure part of it has to do, and my, even my hair is different. It's the super curly hair that I can't seem to control anymore. It didn't used to be curly? It was curly, but not this curly. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, so there was a lot of different parts that started to come in and um, really change the way I viewed myself. And so then in addition to that, like my femininity was tied to, you know, no more menstruation, as well as arousal as well being a woman, right? I don't mm -hmm. have that same sense of arousal that I once used to have. And, you know, like I said, I tied my sensuality to my breasts. And I was like, well, I don't have that same sensuality anymore. Instead, I'm like, trying to find ways to cover up the fact that I was missing a breast. And I, you know, I had bras that had like fillers and stuff like that, but it was really hard for me to finally come to face with the fact that I had cancer at this point. And so that was when I started to deal or started to not deal or start to bring to light a lot of the emotional factors around um, having cancer and what that means. And the fact that, you know, okay, so my life was sort of, uh, you know, it's, it, it was on the line there for a little while, but you know, okay. So that's, that, that reality only hit later. Right. And the reality of like everything else that comes with, um, that comes with that. So what I tried to do from that point onwards was to try to bring myself to a place where I am. Um, once I, you know, if I'm feeling sad to, to own it and to not cover it up. And that was a big thing for me because I do, I found myself before trying to hold it all in and to build this picture of, you know, resiliency that I'm trying to develop. Then I knew that if I'm feeling sad, well, I'm going to cry in that moment and feel sad, but I'm not going to stay there. I'll, I'll feel sad in the moment, understand where it's coming from, and then know all the tools that I have within me or discover them to see where I can move beyond that. So sadness was a theme. Anger became a theme. Another part was, you know, rediscovering and finding beauty in who I am. So I did a lot of things to um, figure out me as a person and develop my beauty and, um, and to figure out how I'm beautiful again. Yeah, I, I imagine with, with, the loss of the, with the loss of the left breast that that would be just such a huge I, I mean, I, I can imagine that, that chemo and the surgeries were, were very tough, but that self-image to, to have like part of who you are be taken away from you and then have to rediscover who is this, this new person that I am is, is incredibly challenging. Um, and I, I really think it's amazing that you were, were able to say, okay, these emotions are going on and instead of bottling them up or instead of pretending like they don't exist, I'm going to feel them. I'm going to experience them. And I'm also not going to just hold on to them and, and kind of dwell in whatever it is that they're telling me, but I can experience them and then let them go. That's, that's okay. amazing. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and it, it took a lot of work and, and for me to let things go, I needed to do actions. Like obviously I'm a person who likes to do things whenever, yeah something is tough. So I was like, okay, well, what are the actions I can do? 
So part of what I did and part of what I wanted to do was um, I blogged my journey, which was a big deal. And I, I was happy to have blogged sort of my path and whatever I'm feeling in hopes that it would help somebody else. And I tried to get as, you know, I tried to be vulnerable because in order for me to, to truly heal or to move in a direction of healing, I needed to be vulnerable and real with myself so that, and hopes that it would help somebody else. And then another part was, was I needed to rediscover, you know, who I am as a person right now. So part of what I did was, and this took, um, I was really happy that I did this was I had, well, my husband and I decided that we wanted to move back to California and go back to, you know, the life that we had. And it, you know, we were fortunate that we were able to do all that sort of stuff. And I was glad for it. When I went back to California, I, um, one of my, I had wanted to take photos of me. Um, in my, like a, a while back, I had taken um, some photographs of me and I'm glad I did. I took some, um, you know, it was the first time in my life that I, years ago I took pictures um of myself like some of those boudoir pictures yeah. where I, I took I took a sari and I sort of wrapped it around myself and I was being really sensual and I loved it and I had so much fun with it I did it with a group of women and it was really fun and I loved doing that sort of stuff and it was the first time that I ever saw myself you know coming from like being this super like um academic person to seeing myself in this other picture and I was like that's me. And I'm like, I'm going to hold on to these pictures. So one day when I'm older, I'm going to look back and be like, look at that. I was, I was really hot. <laughs> and then, and I was like, you know, at that point in my life, I was really happy and did something like that for myself. And I was like, I kind of want to do something like that for myself now. And so one of my students, she'd graduated um, and she likes to, what part of her sort of thing that she does, she's a naturopathic doctor, but she also finds health in art and photography. And so she does photos of women um, trying to find their, in, 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 a, in a spirit of empowerment. So she actually, and I had that thought that I wanted to reach out to her and it's as if we were thinking on the same wavelength. She messaged me and said, you know, I would love to take your photos. Can we do a photo shoot? And I was like, nice. I would love that. So kind of in the same fashion, we did photos. And this time what I did was I, um, you know, we took some photos of me and I, I didn't have my, um, I took off the mastectomy bra. So then um, I had the sari on and you would see like one side of me was flat. And so, and I took some, you know, I took a bunch of photos and you can see like throughout whatever I'm wearing, you can see that one side is flat. And I, again, wanted the pictures with the sari because it's tied to my heritage, um, but in a way that's still sensual to me. And that when I look at it, I perceive beauty and sensuality when I look at those pictures. And so, um, and so this time what I did was for those photos, I shared them. So, you know, if you go to my, like, you can see them on my social media posts, you can see them on my, um, like on my blog posts and stuff like that. This time I, I let, you know, I was like, this is for not just me, but for everyone who may be going through something nice. um, to see. And I was like, it was important that others see it as well. So I did that and that was a, it was a big one for me to do, um, for me to start to acknowledge what's happened to me and to find beauty in my body. Cause when I look down at my chest, it's not a flat chest, you see scars, right. all just scar tissue, ruined skin, like scars from the, all the multiple infections, from the surgeries, from everything. So then I knew that the next steps to move on from there, I wanted, 
you know, uh, it was to have reconstruction again. But this time the reconstruction was going to be for my own body. I didn't want to use um, silicone implants again. So it's a two-staged approach. So the first stage was um, they were going to take my thigh, take the muscle, fat, and skin from my inner thigh and use those materials to mold me a breast on my left side. And then later on, so my next surgery is going to be in March. Um, they're going to do the same thing, remove the implant on my right side and build me the same one. Right. Um, and so that I feel, even though, again, it's, it's, I know it, it's, again, I don't have feelings, you know, it's more surgeries, it's more pain, but it's more recovery because you're recovering from two surgeries. It's still, it's, it's me, it's all parts of me. And I feel like I'm, I'm okay with that. Not to say that there was anything wrong with the silicone. I just, because it was tied, because it was something that my body rejected initially, I just feel like I don't, I don't want that anymore. So I was like, yeah. I want, I was like, okay, I'm, we can remove the right side yeah. and, uh, and go into to that just to make me feel whole. And for anyone uh, listening or watching, we will be putting uh, the blog and social handles down in the description of this. So definitely go, go check those out. So how did how did your experience with cancer and going through all this impact uh, how you view health I mean being a healthcare practitioner uh, I, I imagine that this brought you closer to health or, or a different understanding of health absolutely you know before all this I would say I was never tied to a health to healthcare system very much because I was healthy. I didn't really have anything going on. I was, you know, knock on wood, not even as much as a broken bone. I was, you know, it was pretty boring. And so I never really used healthcare very much. And then now, you know, in my going through cancer and after with all the after effects of things, I'm, you know, a lot closely tied to the healthcare system. And so I've grown in appreciation for, um, difficult moments for my patients. Whereas before I felt I could sit with them and I could empathize and I could be there with them. But now I feel I can understand them when they're moving through a difficult moment. I can, I felt like it's deepened my level um, of appreciation, not just as a practitioner, but also just with my relationships with people. I felt like it's changed the way that I interact with those around me and I mean, it changed the way I work. It changed the way I do many different things. Before I worked, and I worked a lot and I prided myself on my busyness. Mm -hmm. um, but my busyness didn't always lead to a goal. It was me being busy. And I felt like in the end, I didn't have as much to show for it. Maybe, you know, I'm sure in other people's eyes, they would say you had plenty to show for it. But in my in, inside, like depths, and spirituality sense, I felt like I didn't have a lot to show for it. Whereas now, yes, I'm just probably as busy as I was before, but I do a few different things, a few things differently. I, one, I feel like whatever I'm doing now, it's me directing it. It's me deciding what I want to do right. rather than the work directing me. And so that's become one thing. The other part is, is that 
um, you know, I feel that the whatever it is I do has depth and meaning for me. Um, it feels like whatever I'm producing, whatever I'm doing in the world now gives me a sense of joy and it gives me a sense of happiness and whatever struggles, I feel like I don't have that same sense of stress, like that persistent stress that I had before. Um, and if some days where I do feel a stress, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, turn things off and just spend time with my family and just be like, you know what, things got a little overwhelming. So I'm going to take a day. I'm just yeah. going to take a break here and, um, and I'll come back tomorrow. I'm okay with like missing, you know, if I have to miss something, obviously if it's things important, I, I let people know, I'm just like, I need a moment today. And, and that's just the way it is. And I, I felt like before I'd never would have said stuff like that. I would have just, you know, burned the candle at both ends and just kept working. Whereas now I'm like, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to, I love what I do and I want to continue loving it. So I need to take a break and be there with myself and my family right now. So I can, I can be fully attentive in the things that I love to do. Nice. So you began to, to truly like live your life, to be in the driver's seat of, of your life. Right. Am I, am I hearing you right there? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yeah. So it was a few different things. So one part is me living my life. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, here I am finally living the life that I wanted to live, but also, you know, coming to face a few different things. Like I, I felt like my connections around women and the things and how women play a role in my healing and my life really started to evolve a lot of different, a lot of um, who I am now. So I felt like, you know, this idea of healing through connection started to become a theme where those who I am closely connected to are the importance of making sure that, and I feel like it's especially important right now when we're, you know, amidst a pandemic and we're forced to become separated um, and live in these independent areas and, and not have those same connections that we once used to. Instead, we have to try to um, develop connections in different ways. <clears throat> and so um, being able to have an, and foster these connections and tell stories with each other and be vulnerable with each other mm -hmm. started to play a big part of my healing um, and a big part of how I then understand people in the world too. And so I took those stories of people that I know in my life right now and as well as, you know, the stories of the women in my life who brought me to where I am today, like my mother, my aunts, the, my grandmothers, um, all those women who, whether I knew them or not, but I, you know, I've known them in my soul, they all sort of play a role and they, they weave these intricate stories of their vulnerabilities that I feel like I'm expressing as well. And then it's helping me through my healing journey into developing that state of resilience in that I can, you know, I can continue to foster um, their strength, um, hopefully within me as well. Yeah. And do you think that that's like, that's true on just a human level that, you know, in, in sharing and being vulnerable, that that is a, an integral part of the healing process? I think so. I think in order for me, at least I found in order for a person to truly heal, we need to be able to reach those uncomfortable places, right? You need to get to some of those really 
hard places sometimes. And I, and I know that it's difficult, you know, it's difficult and different for all people in different ways. Um, and this is just my personal journey. And so I found for me, in order for me to heal from what I've been through um, and what I'm still going through, I needed to get to that place of vulnerability. So that meant for me to, with the goal of my motivation is I want to help others. Um, I want to make sure that this story, this cancer story, as far as getting cancer stopped with me, but the, I was like, if other women feel the way that I felt during some of these cancer things, I don't want other women to feel like that. I was like, that needs to stop. So that needs to be addressed. So I want women to, you know, I want other women who've gone through this to know that it's to, that it's okay to be sad, that it's okay to be angry, that we can express these emotions and, um, and as well as to grow from there. So that sense of being vulnerable comes from being able to express these emotions that we don't, you know, oftentimes within, you know, I don't know if it's, all society or South Asian culture where, or me being the eldest, it's, you know, where a lot of it could be where I have the sense of responsibility to my family um, and to those, to my loved ones. So I would often hold in my emotions um, and like, and try to portray an image of, you know, what I, of, of responsibility to my, to others around me and, and help out anybody I can but at the sacrifice of myself. And I'd see that, you know, within, uh, with especially the matriarchs of the families within our cultures where, and I know it's common amongst many cultures where you would see um, the matriarchs or the mother figures or, you know, whoever it might be, often take on a lot of the emotions and then hold them inside and tend to everybody else, but not themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in order for me to heal, I needed to tend to me. So I needed to be vulnerable and speak up and yeah. say my emotions and say the things that were happening and not be so focused on making sure that everybody else is happy around me. Yeah, you, it's something I see really, really often. Um, I think that, you know, that that, that plays a, a pretty large part in a lot of people's lives. And I, I do think uh I, like i agree with you that it's often in the matriarchal it's often in the the matriarchs that that we see this this but it it definitely comes in into men as well where we we care so much for the people around us so we don't want to burden them with possibly anything that that we're going through and you know what i'll just take everything on to myself and it's fine i'll hold this but then it starts to come out in other ways right we start to that person's health starts to decline as well so do you feel like in you kind of overcoming that conditioning if you will um that that has benefited your life like would you recommend that other people also go and, and try to overcome that i have to say so a lot of what i was working through um i I was, you know, deeply involved within my own sort of spirituality um, and faith in, in whatever ways that I felt like I needed to visualize that at that moment. And so, um, and a lot of it, you know, could be reading anything. And one of the things that I was reading a lot about is, um, and I, I learned, so Gabor Mate, um, 
he's wonderful physician and I'd um, you know been reading his book since I was a student um, and was really highly encouraged by a lot of his work and um, you know he's got great work on them on books like when the body says no um, and then a lot of it sort of talks to that aspect of you know, that personality that ends up with breast cancer um, and the people pleasing and all that sort of stuff that I was doing so when it comes to healing I think vulnerability is a key component of healing, whatever that looks like for anyone. Um, and so, you know, I, I encourage people to move towards um, that. Now I didn't do it alone. I have, I had a cancer coach before. I still have a cancer coach. I do art therapy, created a vision board yesterday. Like I, I don't move through these things alone. I'm constantly on the phone with like my aunts and my cousins and all these like important women in my family, my, my good friends. Um, my circle that I have. So in moving through vulnerability, I do it with support. I do it. So I have it um, very interwoven. So I felt like I'm, I'm almost cradled and moving through my, I feel safe in my vulnerability um, with these women. Like I felt like perhaps I didn't feel safe before to express my vulnerability, but now, um, you know, I've built up whatever it is that I needed to create a space where I feel that I can express my vulnerability. And so, and that's why I say it's different for everyone because the, the space that a person needs to create to be able to express their vulnerability may look different. Mm -hmm. And so this was my, this is what I needed to do. I needed to blog, I needed to write, I needed to talk to people, I needed to have women around me and support me because I felt that this, so much of this was tied to the female um, of what I perceive females and sensuality and all that whole picture. So because everything was so much tied to that identity, that was who I would reach out to and identify with. And other, you know, people who I, um, who I value from, uh, you know, they could be males as well, but people who I value from that same structure of like being able to hold me in that web while I sort of express my vulnerability and, and in an unbiased, unjudged manner. Mm -hmm amazing and how has all of this impacted your practice I have to say it's um I've definitely changed the way I practice before so even this was a, a change that I had made even before um moving to California back in you know 2017 was that um before I was a busy practitioner because I was solely in practice and so I saw many patients and I would, and I was really happy that I did. And I loved seeing a lot of patients because I loved doing all the, the work that I did. And it was, for me, it was, you know, I get to help bring some, somebody, I got to make someone happy and, or, and help them through their issues. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. And I love the connection and I love being able to get to know people. So I, I kept doing it more and more and more, but then, um, and then when I left, to become a full-time um, professor and researcher, then, you know, clinic sort of is now just supervising, it, which is still great. I supervise clinic now where the students see the patients and I'm there where they um, report to me and I, you know, I, I see the patients in that way, but it's not the same manner as I used to. Right. But then what I ended up doing was I, after, you know, while going through the cancer journey, I started seeing patients again, uh, my own patients, private patients. And so what I do now is I take on 
um, patients who are wanting to move through, like patients who, I take a small select group of patients and those patients who are motivated for change. Um, so if they're, you know, and whatever it might be, some people know me because I work through mental wellness. And so they wanna focus on mental wellness and see how I can work with them on that aspect. And I help them with that. Some people want to see me because they know I've been through a cancer journey and want me to talk about their cancer or something um, that they're going through. So um, I work on them through that. But the whole idea is that, you know, now I only see a small select group of patients. And I, in my, my practice is mostly, uh, I mean, well, now with the pandemic, it's 100% online. Um, and so with being online, um, it ends up the connection that we form and that same way where I'm trying to instill that sense of support and being able to be vulnerable um, through this online media instead. And I'm, you know, I, I like that role. And so now I end up having a closer connect, connection to my patients because they have a few ways they can reach out to me instead of just waiting for their next appointment. Now, you know, we develop connections, they're able to connect with me outside of their appointment. Um, they sort of have me um, helping them closely through their health goal or health journey um, before, you know, they, I feel, you know, we feel like they're in a place where they've kind of steadied themselves and then they sort of graduate on. Yeah, very cool. Um, what would you say the biggest lesson is that you learned throughout this whole journey that you've been on? I have to say that... Um, you know, there's a few key themes that came from a lot of this. One is um, the power of determination. You know, I really knew that I was, you know, I was, I had my ideals for what I wanted to do. I knew I was going to survive. Um, but this was something that was beyond that. It was something that I was determined that, like I said, that this cancer, which came from the women in my family and I was determined that this was going to end with me. I learned that um, that there was this ancestral role. There's the story that came from my ancestors, and particularly the women, um, my women ancestors, of this story. And interestingly, very interestingly, um, there's this. I don't know. I don't want to call it. I, there's this story within the women. Um, from my family, from my dad's side, is that, you know, there's, there, it's said that, oh, the women in this family tend to pass away. And there's, you know, whether, you know, this is in the villages, this is what's, right. what's told is, um, you know, the women of that family seem to pass away, whether it was from whatever it might be. Um, they, you know, obviously in the villages, they call it a curse. So right. I feel like whatever that tie is, that ancestral maybe trauma or whatever it is, that story, I felt like I've stopped it. I felt like it now came here and I was like, well, that's enough of that. And so because that story is tied to then oppression, it's tied to, you know, so many different themes that aren't growing um, and are not allowing the women to kind of thrive. So I was happy, I was determined that that story ended. And so I'm happy to have proved that story, to have ended that story. and. And I'm happy for that. So now, and I, I have to say, cancer became something that I thanked because it's something that changed my perspective in life. 
And whereas now, like, you know, I, I had this image of what I wanted in my life and the story of what I built up. You know, I was going to have this family. We were going to live here. We're going to do that. And now here I'm sitting here, you know, at 42 years old, my frozen embryo in, in Toronto, not knowing, you know, what's going to happen yeah. and not knowing if that image of what I expected as a family is going to come true. And, you know, the story of how my body was going to be and how my life was going to be. Like, I say everything changed about me. Like when I listen to my voice, my voice even sounds different from what it used to be. And so, so many parts of me have changed that I have to, that I'm now learning to, and I'm still, it's a learning process. Every day I, I look at myself, I'm like, yeah, love and kindness, lady, love and kindness. Yeah. <laughs> and so every day I've been learning about developing that state of love and kindness and thriving within there. And then the last big piece that I really learned is around boundaries. I have to say that, and I'm, and that's something that I'm still developing, like in, with Gabor Mate, he talks about it as well, about this idea of, you know, when boundaries are, um, when there are no boundaries or when my boundaries are sort of all, you know, flexible, then anybody can penetrate through, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't have, if I don't stand for anything, then, you know, what am I? I won't have that sense of, you know, uh, of being able to withstand what I can, what I can, well, being able to hold up what I can stand for. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I was so focused on people pleasing and feeling the emotions of others that I didn't, I never really checked in with myself. So now I've sort of through the cancer journey, as close as everyone got to me, I realized I had it was also my fault. I had also, as much as I was focused on people pleasing, that that boundary was sort of open but the boundary of letting people into me was closed right and so that sort of that part but that really small part of me that i i hid way deep down of letting people to get to know me i nixed that because i didn't know me so how am i supposed to let the people get in and know me yeah i think that that is huge like that's that is so it's huge and I think there's going to be a lot of people who are listening to this who are like that's me <laughs> so how do you go about setting that boundary or yeah how do you go how do you yeah. <laughs> again like I can speak to me this is the, this is me moving through my life and so vulnerability plays a big role for me so me being like okay I've got to realize that I'm holding back a piece of myself from this interaction. And so it begins for me with the small things. My dog is really good as, as loud as he is. He's also really good um, at a, of an emotional indicator. He reflects the emotions that I feel. And so, you know, if my dog's feeling anxious, then I'll check in with myself. I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing right now? That's, that's like anxiety provoking you know, in my dog or in myself, because then he's feeling my emotions and reacting mm -hmm. based on them. So he's a really, you know, for those who have like little people or little animals around, they're great. Um, children and I always feel like children and children and uh, animals are great for because they're such energetic beings. They're great at that. But, um, but outside of that, I'd have to say, like, for me, a lot of it has become, um, with those people who I trust and those people who I love to be vulnerable with them and say, 
hey, I'm, I'm not having a great day or, you know, to say what I need. I'm like, I'm not having a great day. I just, can I just talk about it? And then, and then I feel better after. And, you know, I was like, I don't need positive anything after, like, I don't need someone to be like, just think positively. Cause that's the worst thing you can say to someone when they're feeling down instead, all, you know, reflect on what I'm feeling. If, if I'm feeling low, be like, wow, yeah, that sucks. And I'd be like, yeah, that, that's exactly it. it. It sucks. And that helps me to acknowledge that that is, yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah, that really does suck. I feel mm-hmm. bad. And then once I'm there, I'm like, okay, I've expressed that. I felt that. Now I'm ready to move on. So I'm going to go take a walk. Nature is a huge, huge thing for me. Being able to walk outside in nature is yeah. massive. And so being able to go outside, I talk to trees a lot. Nice. Trees are my like, trees are my people. I talk to I, when I was in, um, living in like Mississauga and Brampton, I've always lived in this, like in this one area, which was near, um, where, um, L.M. Montgomery had written Anna Green Gables, or parts right. of Anna Green Gables. So she wrote, and so, and I'm a huge fan of like Anna Green Gables, Rota Avonlea, all those like L.M. Montgomery sort of things. I love it all. And I really identify with that. So then I would talk to the trees and I'd be like, these are the same trees that Ellen Montgomery would see. And so I felt like empowered by that. And I'm like, so I would talk to the trees and the trees are always listening. Cause I'm like, they're all connected energetically and underground. So I'm like, I talk to trees, I hug trees. Like the trees know all my whole story over and over and over again in my entire life. Then when I moved out to California, I would talk to the palm trees. I'm like, palm trees roots are shallow. I was like, they don't go very deep. I'm like, right. I was like, palm trees, sorry, guys, you're not the one that I talked to. <laughs> so I talked to the ocean and the ocean was nice. And then, you know, as I've moved inland, there's other trees here now. So I go into the forest and I talk to the trees here. I'm like, okay. I was like, nothing against you, palm trees. You're great. You're lovely. Um, but I'm going to talk to some of these other trees and you can listen in as well, but I'm not going to direct all my conversations to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nature so being is, in nature. It's so important. And I think, I think for some reason we've forgotten the importance of nature, but I think really everybody has this innate draw that is almost like begging us to come back into nature. Because in my experience, aside, you know, once we can get over, ah, there's bugs and like I'm dirty and stuff. Once we can get past that, it's like, wow. I feel so much better. I feel more connected. I feel more at peace. I feel just, just calmer, right? And uh, there's definitely something to be said about trees are not just those things that stand there. Uh, there, there is more to life than than just that, right? Oh, huge! Yeah, I remember. You know, the first time I acknowledged I had cancer, I was supported by the trees. And so I was hyperventilating and panicking and like the first, I was going for a run and I was in the forest and all of a sudden it hit me. I think this was like maybe soon or shortly after my diagnosis, maybe a week or two after my diagnosis. And I was out for a run, I was in the trees in the forest. And all of a sudden I just started weeping and crying and like, you know, hyperventilating and everything just sort of hit me all at once. And then I just like, my hand went out and it was a tree that was there. And I just sort of held on and I felt like I was like okay this the tree the energy from this tree and I looked up and I saw the green and I looked at the ground and I could see like my my feet were sort of within the the ground I was like okay 
I'm connected to everything here. I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. I can go through this. I can move through this. And, you know, all the difficult moments of my life, I've always sort of looked to the, the trees for guidance and, um, and for just to be able to, just to feel like whenever I need to feel loved, I felt like nature is the, the place I go. Yeah. I mean, and there's a reason why, you know, doctors in Scotland prescribe going out to nature as therapy. It totally is. It totally is. For sure. I tell my patients the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, funnily enough, so do we. Like, that's that's a part of what we do at SORT is getting people back in there. So, um, Baldry, what advice would you give to somebody who is feeling stuck on their climb? Someone who is like, they, they feel like they're in a rut. They feel like they don't know where to go. What, what advice would you give to them? So from, and this is just my own sort of thoughts and my own advice. Hey, if you're stuck for me, my thing is writing, find the thing that, that, that connects you to that deep inner part of yourself that you're holding back from others. For me, it's writing for somebody else that might be going for a walk or playing the piano or something that involves creation, maybe, you know, painting or whatever it might be. Um, it's about connecting to, for me, at least it's about connecting to that inner part. And so writing does it for me. Um, when I'm really honest with myself, I, I can pull up a blank screen on my computer or take out a piece of paper. And, you know, after a few deep breaths, when I'm just to myself, I can put pen to paper or have my fingers over the keyboard and without any other thought, just start moving my fingers or start moving my hand and words form. And the right. next thing I know, things start spilling and things start coming out. And that's, and that's me. And that's how I sort of move when I'm stuck. And then whatever I'm stuck about will appear on the screen or appear on my paper. And it'll help me to, you know, guide me to what direction I need to take next. Nice. Fantastic. Um, and so my next question is, is for our listeners and it's after listening to this conversation, what are you going to do with this? What would become possible in your life if you started to apply these lessons and you really started to take action today with, with what you've learned? Because here you are, you're here listening, you're here improving yourself, but it's in the action that, that we really start to see results. Okay, uh, so if you want to reach out to Dr. Kamba, socials will be in the description below, blog will be in the description below. Um, we'll make sure that, that everyone can reach you, Baljeet. And is there anything that you'd like to add just before we wrap up here? Yeah, so I coming up soon, um, I have a podcast that's coming out that's going to continue these sort of conversations about connection and amongst women and moving through hard things. It's um, so that should be coming up. It's called Mendy Stories and um, it'll be coming out within the next couple of weeks. Fantastic. And uh, as soon as that's up, that will also be linked in the description. So if you're watching this uh, a couple of weeks from now, then, then check the description and it'll be there. If Thank you, you very, very much. If you found this podcast beneficial, please consider subscribing and rating and sharing this episode with someone you know so that they can benefit from it too. The more that we can share, the more that everyone can heal and 
and uh, improve their lives. This podcast is brought to you by Sword Academy, where you can make the best you possible. You can find out more about that at swordacademy.ca. Apology, thank you so much again for being here with me and see you all next, next episode. Thank you very much.